0: You know, many evangelical churches do a Saturday night service. If they're large enough, they do a Saturday night and then a Sunday and so forth. Um, so maybe they're in the rhythm or the cadence of doing such. But for us, we don't. Um, and so it is an odd time. And I know many people have things that are scheduled and so on and so forth. But um, as we were thinking about it um, for a season of time, about a Saturday evening service on the marathon weekend, um, it just comes to a steady diet of the Lord's, of Lord's Day that um, you're really missing, we're all really missing, um, important um, nutrition in our faith by skipping a week. And again, you you can't say, well, I know I didn't go to church this week, necessarily a tick for tack kind of thing, like, oh, I'm responding this way. I obviously didn't go to church this week. Um, That would just be um, oversimplifying it. But the reality is it does have an effect. Um, Whether we can experientially... um, See it or sense it or have it explode or take place on us. um, Just as each Lord's day, when the word falls like rain, as the writer of Hebrews says, falls upon the crop, um, it has an effect. Um, You might not see the immediate effect by leaving a sermon at one point and being like, "That was amazing time together," and then the worship was just amazing, and I'm on spiritual cloud nine. You might just come in and. Go through the cadence of worship and go out. And that too is nourishment. And over time, it continues to have its continual effect. So, as we were thinking about it, we don't want to just surrender a Lord's Day to the marathon. Um, We really want to uh, have time of worship together, lest we have a two week layoff. the, the final scene, though, is where we're at in um, and, and our final journey this afternoon um, with this um, wonderful relationship we've had with the, with the gospel of Luke for a season of time now. And this last scene of Luke 24 covers two periods of time as we look at it just for a few moments this afternoon. The, the first period of time we'll look at in the text, what was read for you is beginning in verse 44. And that's the first kind of initial conversation of, of the final scene. And it, and it covers the moments of Easter Sunday evening. Um, so that's the first portion. Um, when you're looking at 44 through 53, there's kind of two scenes Um, or two time periods, really, of instruction that are kind of being condensed into um, one set of 44 through 53. And so the first initial period is Sunday evening, and that's the instruction he's giving beginning in verse 44. And then there is the rest of it that he begins to discuss about his ascension and him going, the spirit coming, and then the going on into worshiping in the temple. And that covers roughly about a six-week period. Um, uh, that's really taking place. So you you have the conclusion of Luke's gospel in one sense, where he's giving them the final instruction about the fulfillment of his redeeming work from the Old Testament, and that takes place that Easter evening. And then, again, the next portion is really a transition away from Luke's gospel and into the book of Acts, Luke part two, as we've said multiple times. So the last set of verses there in Luke 24 covers about a six-week period of time. I want to show it to you so you can see how this is happening. And um, Luke is doing this, like, introduction to Acts, conclusion to Luke at the same time. By looking at Acts 1, if you have a second, just flip over to Acts 1. If you, if you can't get there, I'll just read it for you. But here, what I'm trying to say in the sense of winding down Luke and launching Acts is uh, both are taking place in this final scene of Luke 24. Acts one one starts this way. In the first book, O Theophilus, which is obviously a reference to Luke, his own gospel, Luke being the author of Luke and Acts. And you remember the dedication of the gospel of Luke is to Theophilus that he might have certainty in his faith. So here he introduces now Acts, and he's rehearsing Luke 24, Um, the same kind of scenery. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to his apostles whom he had chosen. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering. Now, that's where we're at in Luke 24. So so he goes on, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. We covered that last week. I have flesh and bones. Come and touch. Let me have that bread. I'll break it and I'll leave it here. And then I appeared into a locked room. Again, Luke is rehearsing. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them, and here's our our kind of six-week period, to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. That's what's going on in the end of Luke 24. So it's covering a larger portion. I'll just read 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So if you go back to Luke 24, that same instruction is taking place over this period of time before verse 50. Verse 50, you have another marker. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven. So, again, between this and verse 44, we have roughly a six week period of time where he is giving them his final instructions regarding his proofs of resurrection and the nature and the meaning of the kingdom of God. Back here in Luke 24, though, you'll see verse 44 gives us a little connection to Easter evening. Um, Let me go back to verse 36 of of chapter 24 just by way of remembrance that we covered this last week. Let me just read the text so you can see where we're at tonight um, in Luke 24. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and and frightened, and and the terminology there being panicked. They were in a panic and, and thought they saw a spirit, and he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why are you in a panic? Why? And again, that issue of faithlessness. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands. I'm showing them right to you. And his feet. And while they still disbelieve for joy, their minds blown. And they were marveling, is this really happening? Is this really occurring? I can't believe it. Literally, I can't believe it kind of thing. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he did what he felt necessary in front of them. He took it, and he ate it before them. To once again reinforce, it's me in bodily resurrection. Verse 44 then picks up right after that. Then... He said to them, so again, where are we at? Right after eating the broiled fish, he began to speak to them. We're on that same late night of Easter day. The day that the women went to the tomb and saw the tomb open, the day that they walked with him on Emmaus, and then the day they ran back to Jerusalem, and the day that he appeared, and the day that he talked to them, and the day that he ate the fish, and now we're still in that late night Easter When he begins to tell them, finally, we're winding down one chapter of redemptive history. And we're launching another one. This is what he does with them this evening. And I want to take a look at it for a couple of moments. Because it's happening that very moment. After he ate the fish, then. Not not six weeks later, not over the course of six weeks. But right here, initially, as Luke says, that late night on Easter day, he said to them. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And then what he's going to do in the next few moments, or or as we're going to see from the next few moments, is two things. Number one, he is going to conclude his being physically among them. That's the conclusion of one chapter of redemptive history. We're, We're concluding something tonight, and we're launching something tonight. That's what is taking place here in this Easter evening. And what he's concluding is his being physically among them. And then what he is beginning with them on the other side. So the conclusion, I'm no longer going to be here physically. But the beginning is the second aspect. And that's what's picked up in the book of Acts. And that is, we're launching a global mission. so, So we're concluding that me being here, eating with you like this, eating this piece of broiled fish, and then letting you touch me and me touch you. We're ending this, but we're beginning what you'll see in the book of Acts. And that is a global mission. So notice how he begins to prepare them for his departure then, knowing that's what he's about to lay upon them, is his departure. Notice what he says in verse 44, as he then says to them, right after eating, so, so they got this sense, this must be him. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That is, not that he's not now, but before, when we were together over the course of my ministry, that Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is what I've said multiple times over. That everything depends upon your being grounded in the word of God. That's what he's saying to this this church gathered in front of him, the disciples the band of brothers, the early church fathers, those apostolic fathers laying the foundation of the church, building upon the work of Christ. He immediately lays down the thought that everything going forward will depend upon their being grounded in the word of God. How so? Well, you'll notice... He adds here, Luke, the same author, adds to what he had said earlier about Clopas and Mary. Um, look, look in verse 27. It's a repeat. Look, look closely at verse 27. And beginning, well, I'll just start a little bit higher just so you see what the conversation is in case you have forgotten it in the last few weeks. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, of necessity, that the Christ should suffer the things and enter into his glory? And if if there's a question mark there, I don't know, maybe. Well, then let me clarify, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. But here you notice Luke adds yet another dimension to it or he specifies a little bit longer, or, or a little bit more precisely here in verse 44. Where's the specification? Look at it, it, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, okay, so that is there in verse 27. And the prophets, it's there in 27. And the Psalms must be fulfilled. What's the point of adding from, it goes, Law of of Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures, and Luke is precise here to say, and Psalms. Why? Why is that so important? I think it's because he wants to ensure that we understand that it is every text of the Old Testament has messianic significance. It has a termination point. Not a few of them, not a couple isolated, uh, isolated passages or verses, but the entire multiplex of the Old Testament finds its termination in Jesus of Nazareth. How so? By adding the Psalms, he clarifies it because that is the third division of the entire Old Testament. If you were to ask at this point in time in the first century context, what is the Old Testament uh, or, or what, is, what is the Hebrew Scripture? they they would say, well, well, it's contained thusly, the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the law, the prophets, and the psalms. Mm -hmm. This here is a threefold division of the Hebrew scripture. So, So Luke is specifying here, just in case you think maybe it's some sporadic pieces elsewhere out of the law and the prophets and a few spaces in between, he's saying it's the entire Old Testament canon speaks to the person and work of Jesus, this, that Jesus is the center of the Old Testament, has long been a conviction of Reformed theology. That is, even in the children's book, maybe you have read to your children with conviction that the subtitle being that every story whispers his name. And this is how we must read the Old Testament. Some of you, um, bless you, are still on your journey of reading the Bible through in a year. Um, uh, you know, I won't take a show of hands, don't worry. But some of you are still uh, on the journey. And I, I trust that in uh, the reading of the Old Testament, that, that is critical how we read it. That we read it with, with you know, our best, our best efforts. And our best efforts include putting on our, our best Jesus glasses as, as we're reading the, the Old Testament scriptures. Every institution, every office bearer, Every story whispers his name. And and I urge you, not arbitrarily, and not with a weird hermeneutic, for we would simply see our Lord here opens the threefold division of the Old Testament to speak from all the scriptures concerning himself. And then if you wonder, which ones continue to read the book of Acts and watch the apostles preach? You'll see they learned over this 40-day period of a dynamic hermeneutic of Jesus at the center of the Old Testament. But then you'll notice again how he then moves forward in winding down his time with them, of his physical presence with them. Notice as he speaks in the next text in verse 44 how his words to them in 44 repeat the angel's message to the women at the tomb. Again, look, it's very similar. Look over how the angel spoke in verse 6. Of the same chapter, Jesus says very similar words now to the, to the, to the entire gathering of disciples. Verse 6, um, they said, he said, the angel says, he is not here but has risen. And then look at the language. Remember, call to mind how he told you. Do, do you remember? Remember, call it to mind how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. And then he goes on to say, this is what he told you while he was in Galilee. Call it to mind. Recall it to mind. And then here in verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words, again, parallel to the angel's announcement, that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Again, the emphasis is, that we have to receive from Luke in in chapter 24 as in elsewhere, and we'll see in a moment. But the emphasis here after the resurrection is upon what he has said to them. And why is that so important? Remember, at the beginning when he uh, met them on the road to Emmaus, uh, there's the divine passive, right? God prevented them from recognizing that it was Jesus. That's what you see with Clopas and his wife. He prevented them from seeing it. Why? What did he do after he prevented them from visually laying hold of him? He spoke to them the the word of God. He preached to them. He spoke to them the word of God. Now, here again, the emphasis falls upon what he has said to them. He doesn't say, here I am. This is great. Let's move forward. He wants them to remember what I'm telling you now is what I told you then. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Again, why the emphasis upon what he has said to them? And the answer is this. Because the dynamic of their relationship is going to and must change. Why labor so hard over Easter Day? To speak and explain your word to them. To drive them not simply to your physical manifestation, but as they're hearing from a stranger, drive them to the word of God. Because their relationship to him will and must change. And he knows it. He knows the ascension is next. Their relationship must go from walking with him physically, of what they've become accustomed to over the course of the better part of three, three and a half years. It's going to change from walking with him physically to walking with him by faith. The very nature of their relationship to him is going to change. And this walk of faith that they will endeavor to do, that the Lord is calling them and all the rest of the generations of the church to actively do, to walk by faith, is dependent, that entire walk, your walk, my walk, the walk of the church in this age is dependent upon our trusting his word. That is why he he preached to them all day Easter Sunday instead of just said, it's me. Let's skip right to the point. I'm right here standing right in front of you. Your eyes of faith must look to the promises of the word of God. Your faith is birthed by the word. Do you hear, Paul, from whence does faith come? Where did it come? From the hearing of the word of the Lord. And I'm going to leave physically. And I don't want you to panic. What are we going to do without you physically here? You're going to walk by faith. Faith in what? Where will my faith be birthed? From whence will my faith be nourished? By the word of the Lord. Faith is born and nourished upon the written word of God. That's why he says, this, guys, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Go over, just for a moment, um, to uh, Luke 16. Just for a moment, just so you can see, once again, um, the, the way that Luke speaks of it as he, as he um, draws the story up uh, of the rich man and Lazarus. And, and this is going way back in our, in our time in Luke. But just, I'm just going to read it, because again, this is the issue of how critical it is to hear the word of the Lord. To hear it, and to hear it through faith. This is an excellent testimony to the fact. I'm not going to begin in verse 19. I'm going to jump up with his response in verse 24 at the end um, uh, of Luke 16. I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things. You had it all. You know, providence enabled and, and, and gave. You had it in your lifetime. And Lazarus, in like manner, during the course of his lifetime, he experienced bad things. It was a very difficult go for Lazarus. But now, he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Uh, You know, there is no purgatory hereafter. There is no strategy to pay it back. It, 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 you see, 26, there's a chasm fixed. You can't trespass. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, we cannot fall away, and none may cross from you to us. Now look at the man's response to hearing this. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is, send Lazarus, way, you know, send him back to my father's house, for I have five brothers What do you think he's going to do at your father's house? So that he may tell them, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. I don't want my brothers here. Send him. Verse 29 is this parallel to Luke 24. Why didn't you just say, here I am? Why did you preach to them? Why did you walk them from the law and the prophets and the writings? Why didn't you just tell them afresh Word of mouth wise. Why did you send them to the word? Because your faith is nourished upon every word of the mouth of God. You must walk by faith. Is similar to verse 29. But Abraham said, they have, this is speaking of his five brothers. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Do you see? Faith is birth out of the word of the Lord. Look at verse 30. And he said, no. No, 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 no. No, Father Abraham. No, no, no. That's not going to work. You see, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Now, if they just see it, they believe it. Verse 31. He said to them, it doesn't work like that. If they do not hear Moses... And the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Ergo, Luke 24, where he then reminds them and grounds them once again upon the word of the Lord. Here he is in resurrected form. What did they do with it? They panicked, thought they saw a ghost. No, but if somebody goes, if somebody was to rise from the dead right now, everyone would believe No, it wouldn't. Well, then how would anyone come to have faith and believe? Faith comes through hearing. Hearing of the word of the Lord. Now, again, then notice here that there's yet another significant repeat. So he repeats the words that the angels did. They're driving you back to the word of the Lord. And he repeats it the same way. Now, this is what I said to you when I was with you. And now just notice there is yet another sense of repeat. Only this time, it's in his actions. And you, you, you'll immediately pick it up off the text, but look at verse 45. Then he, after this great exposition of him being the center of the entire Old Testament text, verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And you know that, uh, uh, that similar repeat to verse 31. In, in the sense of their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he did that through the means of the meal that he ate with them. But he opened their eyes and they recognized him. It was him. Here, through the preaching of the word, he then opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And what he does with that in the sense of opening their minds, and the text is very careful to say that they to understand. They're comprehending the exposition that he puts before them. Which is none other than enabling them to grasp how the past, the present, and the future of God's activity belong to one complete and perfect work of salvation. And that perfect work of salvation now contained in your Bible beginning with Genesis all the way through to Revelation for when he will return The entire completed one great work of salvation is consummated in none other than Jesus Christ himself. That's what he says to them. I'll tell you again, but these are the words that I spoke to you when I was with you. What would you say? That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything. Then he opened their minds to understand it. To understand the scriptures. You see, through the sovereign dispensing of his grace, at this moment, with these disciples, who will then go, as I opened up with you a moment ago, into the book of Acts. In this moment, through sovereign dispensing of his grace, he ensures, like, I'm opening up the mind And I'm pouring it in that you may understand and comprehend. By doing so, he ensures not only their capacity to understand, but also their capacity to serve as effective witnesses to his redeeming work. That's the next portion of the text. That I get it. I'm ensuring that you get it. And by ensuring that you get it, I am empowering you to be effective, witnesses to it. Because we need to take the gospel from Jerusalem and Judea and a little bit further to the ends of the earth. And you recall a sermon uh, by Peter in Acts chapter 2 very early on, right? And, and, and we'll cover it in just a moment, this little section where they're empowered by the Spirit, uh, the descending of the Spirit, and it's pouring out upon them. But this same sense of Peter understanding the Old Testament text and then thereby being uh, empowered to be an effective witness for it in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon that is early and, and uh Uh, dynamic in verse 11 he says a verse that you're very familiar with but this is how Peter gets there in verse 11 he says there is salvation in no one else how can you say that because I can tell you that everything written in the law of the Moses prophets and the Psalms was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth how do you know that I spent six weeks with him and then three years prior My faith was birthed on this truth and is sustained and nourished upon this truth and now I am here as an effective witness to this truth. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among all men by which we must be saved. There is no other option. There is no other name. To this, the early church was an effective witness because our Lord by sovereign grace ensured such. So where do we go from here? Notice the text then where we move from this sense of understanding and comprehending to being that, effective witnesses. Um, Again, where do we go? Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And, And so they get that, and here they are on third day, and here he is standing In verse 47, where do we go from here? That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations without distinction. Beginning from Jerusalem, you here gathered are witnesses of these things. So the question at this moment, where do we go from here? We go to, the text answers, the entire world. That is the work of missions. What do we say when we get there? What do we say when we are here? If we are to be effective witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ, what must we proclaim? Right? So we could try so many different things. But what do we know for sure we're supposed to be doing as we gather? We're supposed to be proclaiming. What is it, particularly, that we'll be proclaiming about his name? That he would suffer and that on the third day he would rise from the dead. And that based upon that, repentance and forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed. Where do we go? We go to the world. What do we say when we get there or as we participate in this age? We say, repent for the forgiveness of sins. You see, even this aspect, as we kind of wind down our time together, even this aspect of the global reach of the gospel is not contained now in Luke 24 alone. Perhaps it was even the text that our Lord covered with them in the portion of the prophets. You see, the idea that the gospel should cover the entire world was not something brand new, but it was foretold. Isaiah 49.6, perhaps the portion our Lord could even refer to during his six weeks with them. You mean we're taking the gospel, this proclamation, that you can have your sins forgiven, this good news announcement? That you can experience redemption. You can be forgiven your faults. You can be forgiven your transgressions, even your most heinous crimes. This proclamation that we take from Jerusalem to Judea and to the ends of the earth isn't something a brand new vision. No, it was also foretold. Isaiah 49.6, I will make you as a light to the nations. For what purposes? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Paul then cites this very text, Isaiah 49.6, when he is preaching to the Gentiles in Acts 13.47. It wasn't new to him. The same concept. This gospel is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, that his glory might cover it. And this too was foretold in the prophets. Yet we do good this morning. And this is kind of where I'm winding down my time with you. We do good in this sense of missionary endeavor or or Lord's Day proclamation. Or as we would share with our neighbor and our friend. That we would love them as we love ourselves. That we would share with them this sense that you too can be forgiven. That you can have restoration and renewal. That if you repent from your sin, there is forgiveness of your sin. And yet, we do good to also remember that repentance is not a single incident alone or a single moment alone in one's life. And in this sense, I want to speak to you, Redeemer, the church of Christ, those who profess that their faith does rest upon him. Again, repentance is not a single incident in your life alone or a moment in your life alone. Alone. But as Bishop J.C. Ryle would also remind us with these words, I wholeheartedly agree. Bishop Ryle says this happy is that Christian who keeps these two points continually before his eyes repentance and forgiveness. Are not mere elementary truths and milk for babes. The highest standard of sanctity is nothing more than a continual growth in practical knowledge of these two points. You see, the Christian life, your life as a believer, the Christian life is a life of continual repentance and belief. It is perhaps um, easily memorized in this maxim we use in our home, which is not original to us, but one in which we reference. Repent, rejoice, repeat. This is the life of the pilgrim journey. This is what is proclaimed to us in the hearing of the word of the Lord, both once and continually, as the word washes over us and brings forth a godly crop in our lives. Final scene of Luke, shortly as we conclude here, I just want to make one observation, the final conclusion of our wonderful two years in Luke's Gospel. And that is, I'm just gonna read 49 through 53 and make one observation. 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now this is occurring somewhere again over the course, all this over the course of six weeks. We know that in Acts to be the spirit that is poured out, and, and maybe someday we'll do Acts. For now, verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I want to draw your attention to 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. My question to you in this final observation is... Why are they worshiping after the ascension and not panicking? Right? Because he now has left them. The the last time we saw him leave them through the crucifixion and the burial, you remember the only account we have is over there with Clopas and Mary and the, the report in verse 17 is they were looking devastated. But now he has left them and they are worshiping and not panicking at all. Why? I would submit this answer to you. It's because... They have come to know the gospel. To understand the proclamation of freedom. To understand the nature and the meaning of the kingdom of God. That he spoke to them for 40 days while he was with them. And in all of it, they now grasp rightly the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Worship, in this last scene of Luke's gospel... Worship of the living God now revealed in Jesus of Nazareth is at the heart of Luke's vision of the Christian life. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father.